Science and Answers. What was it like growing up as a Mormon woman? Many do not know that in Mormonism, men hold the keys to the celestial kingdom. Therefore, there's a lot of pressure on women as they seek to fulfill their Mormon mission in this life. What are the pressures Mormon women face as they seek to live lives worthy of attaining godhood? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat will be interviewing former Mormon Lisa Brockman. She will share her story of how she came out of Mormonism and to faith in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's part one of Out of Zion, A Journey Out of Mormonism. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and provide biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, we've done several shows on Mormonism, and we know that there are significant differences between Mormonism and biblical Christianity. But what is it like to grow up Mormon? How can we reach our Mormon friends and family members with the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is it like for women in Mormonism? Well, joining us today is Lisa Brockman. She's a writer and missionary. She was raised in the Mormon faith and came to faith in the Jesus of the Bible at the University of Utah. She now serves on staff with Crew, and she joins us here today. She's uh, published a great book of her story. Uh, the book is entitled Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple. So, Lisa, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, Lisa, tell us a little bit then as we begin. What was it like growing up as a Mormon woman? I mean, there's a great emphasis on family in the Mormon mm -hmm. church that many of us know. But explain to us what it's like growing up as a Mormon woman and the goal that is taught to you as a Mormon woman. Okay. Well, as a Mormon girl, my greatest dream by the time I was probably six years old was to be married in the Mormon temple one day and to be a mom. And that is that was just instilled in me from the youngest age. And so everything in my life centered around making myself worthy to be able to one day go to the temple with the man of my dreams and marry in the Mormon temple, where then I would be able to exalt into the celestial kingdom, which is the highest of the three heavens in the Mormon church's theology, and there I would bear spirit babies throughout eternity. If I made it to that kingdom, then I would exalt into goddesshood and bear spirit babies throughout eternity. And so, as you write in your book, man held the keys to the kingdom. Uh, explain that yes. for us. Well, the Mormons teach, the Mormon, Mormon doctrine book teaches that men only men hold the priesthood in the Mormon church, and the keys to the kingdom are all wrapped up in the priesthood. And so they believe that the apostle Peter handed the keys of the kingdom over to Joseph Smith when Joseph Smith founded the church as its founding prophet. And only the men are able to hold the priesthood. And so they hold all authority in the Mormon church. So my brothers who were 12 years old received the priesthood, the first level of the priesthood at that age, and at that point had more authority in the church than my mom or any other woman in the church. 
and then the Mormon man is worthy and makes it to the celestial kingdom, he will attain the level of godhood as God the Father did and Jesus did and shall rule his own planet with his spirit wives. Isn't that correct? That's correct, yes. And so for you as a Mormon woman to make it to that celestial kingdom depended on marrying the right man. Yes, it depended on marrying a man who would be faithful to keep obeying the laws and ordinances of the gospel, which is all of the laws and ordinances contained in the Mormon church, and temple work, doing all his temple work, being faithful to his family, paying a full tithe, going to church on Sundays. All of these laws and ordinances would then make him worthy. And interesting to Mormon theology is that my husband, when we were both deceased, he would resurrect me out of the grave. Jesus didn't do that. My husband would do that. So there was a lot bred into me to cause me to make guys my God from a very young age. And so for the Mormon woman, there's tremendous pressure to be married because entrance to the celestial kingdom, you have to be married. Yes, you have to be married to have eternal life. When I say eternal life, I'm talking about the celestial kingdom or the highest of the three heavens, and that's where Heavenly Father and Jesus reside. They don't reside in the lower two kingdoms, and that's eternal life. And to get there, you have to have a temple marriage. Yeah, so I guess for some listeners who are joining us right now, what do you mean when we say heaven? When we talk to a lot of Mormons, they say, yes, our goal is to live eternally in heaven, but they have a different concept of heaven, that there are three levels, as you mentioned. Describe that for us, and who's in each level? So there are three levels in Mormonism, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial kingdoms. And then in the celestial kingdom, the highest heaven, there's three more degrees of glory. And in those three, you have to be an active baptized member of the Mormon church to enter into the celestial kingdom. But you have to be married in the Mormon temple in order to go to the highest degree of glory, where you become gods and goddesses in the celestial kingdom. And then beneath that are maybe single temple goers who are doing their temple work. They might go to the second heaven or the second degree of glory in the highest heaven. And then the third degree of glory would probably be baptized members of the Mormon church. And so those are the only people who have eternal life in the Father and Son's presence. And then the second heaven would be good people, probably like you, like moral people. The third heaven would contain whoremongers, liars, cheaters, drunkards, adulterers, that type of people. But all the heavens are far better than anything this earth could offer. And so they have what's called outer darkness, which I would equate to hell. And outer darkness was only populated by apostates who knew the truth of Mormonism and then turned their backs on it, like me, or murderers. Everybody else goes to one degree of heaven. Yes, and so the ultimate goal for the Mormon woman was to attain goddess status where you say she would be eternally pregnant, producing spirit children for the new world. Yes. Now, some people listening saying, oh, you know, they they can't uh, 
quite fathom that that's what Mormonism teaches. They've, they've never heard this stuff. When were you exposed to this kind of teaching? Well, this was in our plan of salvation, and this was really bred into me from the time I was in primary. Like the youngest possible age, I was learning parts or aspects of the plan of salvation since I was three years old. We just ate it, drank it, breathed it. And so I could tell you the plan of salvation probably by the time I was five or six years old. They do such a good job educating their children about their plan of salvation. And it's the whole culture in which we existed. In fact, I didn't know that every other faith system didn't believe that God was once flesh and bones, was a man who exalted into Godhood. I thought everybody in the world believed that, so it was a shocker for me when my boyfriend in college introduced me to the biblical God who'd always been God. Now, a lot of you know Mormon friends that we talk to deny well, what you just said. You yeah. know, and they say, oh, no, we don't believe in that, uh, those kind of things. Uh, why, why do they tend to shy away from that? Do they know it or do they honestly not know it? Or are they simply just, you know, not willing to share that information? Well, I think the Mormon Church has worked really hard over the last 40 years to look like historical biblical Christianity. They've changed their image, their ad campaigns. Everything they've done is to shapeshift, so to speak, into looking like biblical Christians. And so I think they might have... I've been out of the church for 29 years, so in that time... Perhaps they emphasize less becoming a god or a goddess. And I think there's some education in our culture. Like they're exposed to the culture more and doctrines of Protestantism and know that other people don't teach this doctrine who are historical biblical Christians and they want to be Christians. And so that's probably why they're not going to come clean with that. Yes, you know. I believe the Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 132, speaks about the celestial marriage. That's an eternal marriage, and that those who attain this level, according to the Doctrine and Covenants, 132, says that you shall be gods and goddesses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good to be armed with passages like that. Yeah. So that's clearly Mormon doctrine. Now, growing up as a Mormon, you were saved at baptism, but you, you tell in your story, in order to maintain good standing with God and to be what you call temple-worthy, mm-hmm. how was it that one remained in good standing with God and remained temple-worthy? When you say baptized brought you salvation, salvation is just overcoming the grave. It's not equivalent to eternal life, and that's just really critical to know when you're engaging with a Mormon. Because we'll say, we believe we're saved by grace, and they'll say, we do too. And it is technically because they've changed the definition of salvation to mean just resurrecting from the grave. Jesus gave that to everybody. So everybody on this earth, according to Mormon doctrine, has salvation by grace. And so when I was baptized, I was like, all my sins were washed clean, but it was up to me to make myself worthy of Heavenly Father's love, acceptance, presence. And the way I would make myself worthy was by obeying the laws and ordinances of the gospel was our terminology. So going to church on Sundays, paying a full tithe, which was 10% of our income, acts of service, being humble, making yourself worthy 
to go to the temple one day was my job, being morally pure, obeying the word of wisdom, which is abstaining from coffee, tea, tobacco, and alcohol. So those are just a few on the short list, but there's a long list of acts that make us worthy, our thought life or unworthy of Heavenly Father's love and acceptance. So I was in a constant rubber band swing between worthiness and unworthiness that I was living in, working really hard, striving, striving, striving to make myself worthy of Heavenly Father's love and acceptance. And then knowing there's this shadow side of me that makes me unworthy, but I can't show that side. Yes, uh, one of the things that you state in your book is that trying to remain temple-worthy was like carrying boulders around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell us about that. Why was that? Well, by the time I got to high school, that's what it felt like to me. There were more temptations in the world. My friends were starting to party and drink and abuse alcohol, and there was something really attractive about that to me because this shame that I was carrying became, I don't think I could have articulated it then, but I was under this constant blanket of shame, knowing I'm not worthy and there are moments of worthiness. And so what once felt like little pebbles because paying a full tithe when I was eight years old wasn't that heavy of a burden. I wasn't really an income, a wage earner. But as a tennis coach in high school, making a lot of money, there's a different level of commitment there. And so I would say... Staying morally pure to the levels that Mormonism required was felt like carrying boulders. I realize, and so it felt like a heavy, heavy burden every day. Yes, that's quite in contrast to Jesus' words in Matthew 11, where he said, "Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest." For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden, burden is light. Right. right. Extremely contrasting. That's actually my life verse. And ah. I feel like it's taken me 29 years to live into it since I met Jesus. Wow. So, you know, Lisa, when you've committed, you know, sins or, you know, acted inappropriately, how does a Mormon get back into right standing with God and become temple worthy again? Well, it's all about repentance and what repentance looks like for a Mormon. If they have degrees of sin, and some are worse than others. So if I tell a little white lie, that's something I can go directly to Heavenly Father about. And repenting means I will never commit this sin again. And there are things that are small sins that I can go directly to Heavenly Father. If I have a pattern, like if I was drinking alcohol and abusing alcohol, coffee, if I was drinking coffee or tea, using tobacco, that would require a trip to my bishop, who was my local lay leader. And I would need to make an appointment with him and confess to him. And then he would determine what I needed to do in order to come back into good standing with the church, with Heavenly Father. So he would determine a certain length of time. If I had fornicated and then that would make me unworthy of a temple marriage for at least a year after meeting wow. with my bishop. Yeah. So there's a great deal of shame when you get older and you are committing sins that are larger like that. When you do begin a repentance process, it's something that can't, it's exposed in the entire community. 
Like if somebody is getting married and they're not getting in the, married in the temple, everybody's wondering, I wonder what they did. I wonder mm, what sins wow. they've committed. Wow, so that's a lot of pressure on a young Mormon woman. Lots of pressure, yes. Yes. Now, you know, Lisa, the belief that you can someday become a goddess, that you'll be eternally pregnant and produce spirit babies for the next life, the Book of Mormon talking about the Lamanites and the Nephites, the Israelites who came to America and established these great cities and all that. A lot of people listening saying, gee, do Mormons really believe that kind of, uh, you know, doctrines and beliefs? Do, do Mormons really believe that? Yeah, Mormons who are devout really believe all of that. And I did all of it, hook, line, and sinker. And back in the 80s, when I was growing up in Mormonism, because there was not an internet presence, and we didn't have access, freely access, to the history of the church, you had to really dig for it. We really believed. And I would say that generation mostly still does. But the millennial generation, 20s and 30s, it's a different Mormonism definitely than my day, and they're willing to throw out doctrines and keep doctrines that they like and more piecemeal together their Mormonism. So they're less devoted to a temple going on a consistent basis. So they're, I think they're less devout, but their culture would keep them very much baptized into the religion. At the same time, there's an, an exodus occurring in Utah, especially right now, from Mormonism, and it's creating this whole, they're calling it the new atheism. Wow. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but, you know, I'm sure you asked questions growing up. Uh, what answers were you given when you questioned some of these beliefs? Well, I actually really didn't question much. I was taught not to question very effectively. I would hear stories in church of people who had been excommunicated in the past because they'd questioned. So it was very much, I was conditioned not to question. And our belief system was structured upon a burning in the bosom, that truth could be determined by praying with a sincere heart about the things that we've read, and if it's true, we'll experience a burning in the bosom, which is a true, like, it's a real experience. I've experienced it many times. So that was our basis for truth. And so the first time that I remember questioning was when I was a senior in high school. And my seminary teacher, which are classes that we would take in Utah, we got to take it as a class period off campus, and it's church education. And so I was in my seminary class, and my teacher dropped this bomb that I'd never heard in my life. And he said that Heavenly Father came down and physically impregnated Mary. And I was horrified. And I just yelled out, that's incest. That's disgusting. Like, Heavenly Father's married to Heavenly Mother, and they birthed Mary in the pre-existing world. That's his daughter, and he physically impregnated her. I was totally spinning, and I couldn't contain it. And my teacher just said, well, there are just some things we can't really explain, and we just don't talk about them. So that was the first time that I was met with a question. Yes. And then the second time was, that year, I was talking with my mom, and I was really wrestling with the whole idea of the practice of polygamy in heaven, which Mormons, t Mormon doctrine teaches, or 
prophets have taught that that polygamy will be reinstated in the celestial kingdom and i was really struggling with that as a senior in high school so one day i asked my mom how she dealt with that and she said honey there are just some things i don't think about and it'll all make sense when we get there and that was how we dealt with questions we don't think about them and it'll just make sense in heavenly father's plan when we encounter them yes uh, that's one of the things you bring up in your book that you are not called to question but just to believe and unfortunately you know that's the case for many christians you know yes. we are told just to believe and not to question when actually questioning is a good thing and if you do have the truth you should welcome questions and yes. provide good solid answers for the good questions that are out there for those who are beginning to question their faith Absolutely. It's formed me into a mom who is so receptive of the questions. Mm -hmm. I had a daughter, my oldest was, I think she was nine years old, and she's like, Mom, I don't know if I believe in God. I was like, that is fabulous. Let's just explore that. Do you want me to be on this journey with you? And she goes, nope. She's a real thinker and was always an old soul. And she's like, no, I need to do this myself. And I'm like, okay. And I just got to dialogue with her and it, I, and by the time she was 11 she knew God existed from her head to her toes and I I think that there's be in Christ there's no need to fear and I think that's a huge difference when you're not in Christ and you're in a worst-faced religious system there was so much fear mm, yes yeah, so well Lisa those were the two initial issues that really got you to start questioning your faith. But talk us through now the journey of how you ended up discovering there's a big difference between the gospel of Mormonism and what the Bible teaches. Walk okay. us through your journey here. Well, I ended up at the University of Utah and was on the tennis team. And my senior year of high school, I did rebel and started partying. And I still believed Mormonism was true 100%. And I knew one day, probably at the end of my college years, I'll turn my life around, do the repentance process, and make myself worthy of a temple marriage. So even though I was rebelling, I never doubted. Those two questions in my senior year, I just accepted. There are things that we just want to understand this side of heaven. And they didn't really linger with me. So I get lined up with by a friend on the tennis team with a baseball player named Gary and we went out for a month and he, he was not walking with Jesus but he knew his doctrine backwards and forwards and so we would party together and then just played together really well and he quickly became my god I definitely worshiped the ground Gary walked on and after we dated a few times we figured out he asked me my faith system, and I said, I'm a Mormon. What's yours? And he said, I'm a born-again Christian. And I was like, what the heck is a born-again Christian? I've never heard of one of those in my life. And he talked about, he explained that to me briefly, and I didn't really have a grid for that. I had not heard about relating with God in a personal way. Today, Mormons use that language more. I had not heard that at all. And so I didn't really want to deal with it. And then Gary and I had dated about a month, and I remember being in his car, driving around campus, and I grabbed the handle to get out of the car to pick up a report card, and Gary said, Lisa, how do you know the church is true? And I turned to him and I said, because I've experienced a burning in the bosom to confirm that it's true. 
And I was armed and ready with my response, and nobody had ever asked me how I know it's true before. And he said, how could you entrust your eternal destiny to an emotional experience in your body? And I was like, well, that's the way you determine truth. And then he he continued to ask me really challenging, legitimate questions, like how do you know Joseph Smith is a true prophet of God? Because I've had a burning in the bosom to confirm it's true. I know he is. Again, Lisa, how can you determine a true prophet by that standard? How do you know he's an authentic prophet of God? How can you defend the historicity of the Mormon Church and Isides and Ossides? And I was completely blown off my rocker and never thought about these questions in my life. And as he asked one question after the next, what had felt like this firm foundation turned to quicksand beneath me. I just felt like I was in a free fall. And so Gary and I, I was like, I don't want to talk about this. And so we waited about a month, and then he just said, let's just do a Bible study. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website at evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org and you may do so right there on the home page. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from A to Z, from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh, oh, oh.